Zechariah chapter 14, to, describes for us some very dramatic events which are going to happen in the very near future. The, uh, the prophecy is one which is very clear, and it's talking about a particular place. It's talking about events which are going to happen in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, as we know, the capital city of Israel, is today uh, the capital of the nation-state of Israel, the modern-day political nation-state of Israel. But it's a city which is a place where various groups of peoples have designs on it. So uh, the Jews, they want Jerusalem to be the capital city of their nation-state, Israel. Uh, the Catholic Church, which is not just a, um, a religious organization, a church, but it's, a, it's also a government as well. They have plans for Jerusalem. They want Jerusalem to be internationalized so that all peoples of all religions can go to Jerusalem to worship there. There are uh, the Palestinian peoples and the Palestinian Authority who want Jerusalem to be the capital city of a Palestinian state. So there are these competing political forces in the world that all want to have control of Jerusalem. Well, Zechariah uh, chapter 14 is a prophecy where the Lord explains events which are going to happen in the, in the near future. The, the date isn't given to us, we don't know when, but God has said that these events that we've just read a little bit of this evening uh, are going to happen in Jerusalem. So look at verse two again. And it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty tough picture painted for us in verse two. It's not a pretty picture. It's a time where dramatic and bad events, uh, terrible things are going to be happening. So verse two of Zechariah chapter 14 says, this is God speaking. He says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled. And the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So God is saying he's going to gather a whole group of different nations from around the world. When he says all nations, it doesn't mean every country in the world today. What it means is a whole group of different kinds of peoples. Uh, different tribes, different peoples from different countries in all, all around the world. There's this whole range of these, these powers, these countries, these nations that are all going to come and they're going to fight against Jerusalem and besiege it and be in battle. Now, if you look back through your history books, you'll find that Jerusalem has been besieged before. For example, when the Romans, uh, when the Roman Empire was in control over the, over the land, uh, the city of Jerusalem was besieged. So this is not the first time that this city is going to be uh, under attack, under assault from hostile nations around or hostile powers around. But this is different because this verse here says it's going to be all nations. There's going to be many nations involved with this. And it's going to be catastrophic for half the population, half the city are going to be taken forth into captivity. It's going to be a dreadful time for Jerusalem. Now, why would the nations of the world want to confederate themselves together and attack Israel and attack Jerusalem? What are going to be the reasons for this? Well, we'll look into this in a little bit more detail tonight. and Maybe our, our talk will help furnish us with some ideas and clues that might give us the answer to that question. However, we are also told in verse 3 of this prophecy of Zechariah that after these dreadful events, 
there is going to be some sort of deliverance and salvation for Jerusalem. Because verse 3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So God is explained to us here very clearly that God is going to send forth, and as verse 4 says in a, in a moment, we'll look at it somewhat, but God is going to go forth and fight against and ultimately defeat all those nations, all those armies, all those peoples who've come against Jerusalem to besiege it and to destroy it, and those who've inflicted such dreadful things outlined in verse 2. Okay? Then in verse 4, it says this, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, the east, uh, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley uh, of the mountains shall reach unto Azor. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. So there's this reference here in verse four to an individual, a man whose feet, his feet are going to stand on a specific site, uh, the Mount of Olives, which is just outside Jerusalem. And uh, it's actually the background image on some of the slides this evening in this, in this presentation. But this prophecy here is talking about the return to the earth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is going to come back to the earth and stand on the Mount of Olives and be the one who leads the armies uh, who deliver and uh, save Jerusalem, the Jews, Israel. It's, uh, there's a reference there at the end of that um, the, the fifth verse there, that this one who's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, he's going to come, not on his own. The end of verse five says, all the saints with thee. Okay, so there's going to be this uh, divine army, if you like, this army from heaven, as it were, uh, that's going to come and deliver Israel. And uh, what's going to happen if you look further down into the chapter, pick out some of the key points. Uh, verse 9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back in verse 4. And in verse 9, not long afterwards, he's going to be established as king, not just of Israel, not just of Jerusalem, but king of the whole earth, king of the whole world. And uh, if we look on a little further to verse 11, uh, men shall dwell in it, again, talking about Israel and the places there, thereabouts. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, Jerusalem today is a, a place where in recent years, you'll be familiar with the fact that they've constructed a very large concrete wall dividing the city into two, in effect, uh, keeping the Palestinian, the Arab populations on one side, effectively on the wall, and, and the Jewish population on the other side. So there's a great big border wall down the middle. It's not really a 
thing that you have in a city which is at peace, is it? Uh, we know from our history books that the that Berlin after the Second World War was divided with a great wall that was just constructed and it came down in the late 1980s. But it's indicative of a place where there is division. It's indicative of a place where there is conflict, where there is contest. Uh, but this verse here is talking about how Jerusalem will be safely inhabited. Well, a city which is uh, living safely and securely doesn't need a wall or protective things such as this. So the way the world is with Jerusalem at the moment, it's going to be transformed after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as this chapter is trying to communicate to us. And then as we go on through uh, the, uh, the chapter, if you look at verse 12, it talks about how when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be a vast unleashing of power which will be used to destroy those nations that have come against Jerusalem to defeat it. So verse 12 says, and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouths. So one of the weapons, as it were, that is going to be used to destroy those nations that come against Jerusalem to destroy it, it's indicative of weaponry that we're not familiar with. Flesh consuming away on people while they stand. Those aren't normally the kind of effects that conventional weaponry has. However, it might indicate something to do with uh, the kind of forces released with nuclear weaponry because uh, some of the effects of uh, massive releases of energy from uh, nuclear weaponry has this kind of effect of uh, people or, or flesh being consumed away. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and use conventional weapons. What I'm saying here is that the forces that the Lord Jesus Christ and his armies will have control over and will deploy on the nations that have come against Jerusalem are going to have these effects. It's going to be uh, the forces of nature, the forces of physics almost, being used against the enemies of the people. It's going to be a, an unleashing of divine power not understood or seen before. And then afterwards, we see towards the end of the chapter in, uh, in verses 14 and 16 and so forth, um, a complete transformation because in, in verse 14 it says and Judah shall also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together gold and silver and apparel in abundance and then verse 16 says and it shall come to pass in that that, that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So those nations that have lost this great battle, they're going to have to hand over their assets and their wealth and they're going to have to submit them and give them over to this new king, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he reigns from Jerusalem. They're going to have to go year by year and worship him. They're going to have to go and participate in 
the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. There'll be a time set for them to go and they have to go. And if they don't, there'll be consequences for them. As the end of verse 17 says, there'll be no rain. Well, if there's no rain on those nations that have been told to come and, and uh, hand over their wealth and submit their authority and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, no rain, no crops, no crops, no feeding your population. Your population then will rise up against the authorities in that nation. It will cause trouble and difficulty and problems for those nations. They will be cursed by God if they don't yield their wealth and their authority to him. So what we see here is the way in which the new king, the Lord Jesus, is going to discipline all the peoples of the, of the earth. Uh, but specifically, it's talking here about those nations that have fought against Israel, the ones that have been for Israel. Uh, these things won't apply to. They, they won't suffer the consequences of their disobedience. So, for example, in verse 18, it says, If the family of Egypt go not up and come not, uh, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Zechariah, talking, Zechariah 14 here is talking about the Lord God, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, using plagues on people in order to discipline them, using plagues on people to destroy them in battle, using plagues on nations to make them compliant and submit to his will. Now, I'm not going to talk about that thing which has been bothering the world for the last 12 months uh, in any great detail tonight, but it's interesting that we've just gone through a plague are still going through a plague and will maybe finishing it hopefully soon. But uh, the consequences of it and, and that plague it can be suggested quite strongly, I think, that the Lord God, who is actually in control of the world, as Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, uh, we won't go there for, for, for time's sake now, but you know, God is in control of the world and he's shaping and moving the nations to go down the path that he wants them to go. And it could be strongly argued that the, the problems that there are in the world as a result of the pandemic we've, we're going through at the moment, is something that God is in control of and is using to force the world's nations to go the way that he wants them to go. So um, if we think about some of the things that are going to be taking place in Zechariah 14, they're backed up by Isaiah in chapter 60, another prophecy. So if you come with me back to Isaiah, a bit further back in the Old Testament, Isaiah in chapter 60. We have some interesting words here for us. Again, it's a prophecy about uh, what's going to happen in the future. So let's just read the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 16 to find out what it tells us there. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the land, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see, all they Gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted 
unto thee. The force, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitudes of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, is writing here to the Jews and explaining to them in these chapters here that there will be a time in the, in, in the future where, because of the power of God being revealed and his light shining across the world, that the Gentile nations of the world will submit their forces to thee, to Israel, and their wealth and their riches will be brought to Israel. It's a parallel, but there are elements here in Isaiah chapter 60 which connect very strongly with the events outlined in Zechariah chapter 14. So in the future, after Christ has returned to the earth and defended Israel and defeated the nations, the nations of the world that are friendly towards the Jews will gladly voluntarily submit their authority and their wealth. Those nations that have been hostile to Israel will be forced to do so and disciplined and punished if they don't. But interestingly, again, Isaiah chapter 60 gives us a bit more information about this. Come with me to verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 60, where it says, Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the, ho unto the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their king shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but, I, but in my favour have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So these, is, these verses here, verses 9 to 13, describe how the nations of the world are going to bring all their goods and their wealth and give them to, uh, to the Jews, to Israel, to the Lord Jesus Christ when he reigns as king. So verse 9, the ships of Tarshish. So the world maritime shipping fleet will be used to deliver things to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Israel, to Jerusalem talks about thy sons from afar, so the diaspora, the Jews which are scattered around the world, will be brought via shipping and via other methods as well, I'm sure, to Jerusalem, their silver and gold also. Also the natural materials in that 13th verse, talking about different species of wood, the most expensive, fragrant forms of wood that there are used to furnish things. Uh, they're going to be brought and given over and used to repair and restore and beautify Jerusalem, this, this place where the Lord Jesus will reign from. So these verses are crucially interesting. And these uh, chapters, uh, numerous chapters in Isaiah and Zechariah talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we're all, while we're in Isaiah, we just contrast what we read of in verse 60 
uh, we're going to contrast that to the Lord Jesus Christ um, from what he did previously, because chapter 60 of Isaiah and other chapters in Isaiah and Zechariah also, and numerous other Old Testament prophecies talk about uh, the Lord Jesus after his return to rule the king uh, as king of the world in glory. But here in chapter 53, the contrast here explains to us a bit about what the Lord Jesus went through first in order that God could bless him with those glories in the future. So if we look at um, verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So this prophecy here in Isaiah 53 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ when he was sacrificed, when he was sacrificed for the sins of the whole world, how he, by suffering those dreadful wounds and injuries and that cruel crucifixion where the uh, Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders and the Jewish people rejected him and crucified him. That was the process through which he had to go through according to his father's will so that later he could be raised to life again and elevated and ultimately uh, be given eternal life and ascend to be with his father in heaven. Uh, that's where he is at the moment, and we await his return, as the Bible explains to us very clearly. But there's a great contrast here between this 53rd chapter of Isaiah, talking about Jesus uh, as the sacrificial lamb, and then we have uh, chapter 60 talking about the great elevation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, having uh, seen a little bit of uh, prophecies about the Lord Jesus, let's look at where we are in the world now, because Israel, Jerusalem, is at the centre point of world politics. Now then, over the last few uh, months, we've seen something come along called the Abraham Accords. So, in the final uh, year of uh, the, the, the presidency of uh, Donald Trump, there was a real breakthrough with uh, Middle East um, peace because some of the nations which historically have been antagonistic towards the Jewish people and towards Israel have now uh, changed their policies, changed their mind and have signed up to these Abraham Accords which are uh, a political and uh, economic set of agreements uh, where nations have all signed a joint statement where they've decided no longer to be hostile to each other but instead to work with each other and trade with each other. So uh, we have here on the uh, on the photograph uh, President uh, Netanyahu of Israel, uh, former President Trump of America, and then the Foreign Affairs Minister from Bahrain, whose name's a bit tricky, uh, uh, Mr. Alzani, uh, Al Zayani, and the Foreign Minister of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Mr. Al Nayan, as well. They went to uh, Washington for a signing ceremony. So some of the Middle Eastern nations recognize now that Israel isn't really their enemy. It's actually a nation they can do business with and they can prosper if they trade with. There are other nations in the Middle East which are potentially a great problem 
to the stability of the whole region and to the prosperity of the many nations in the Middle East. So people are now looking at Israel in a more favorable light and other nations around the world are now getting on board with this Abraham Accord process. So Iran, as a nation in the Middle East, which is very hostile against Israel, a lot of the Arab nations who would previously ally themselves with the Iranian viewpoint are now switching their allegiance and now signing up for peace and trade with Israel. And it's interesting how the, uh, the, the title of the uh, Accords is called the Abraham Accords, because the, 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 the use of the name Abraham and the recognition of the man Abraham from history is extremely significant. So just briefly, let's come back to the Old Testament to uh, find out why that is. So if we go back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, we find out about this man Abraham. Now, today, both uh, the, uh, the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews and the Arabs all recognize Abraham. So uh, the, uh, the Arab nations recognize Abraham as one of their forefathers. Uh, the Jews do also. There is universal agreement that Abraham is somebody of great significance historically. But when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he called him out of a, a, a place that wasn't Israel. He became a Hebrew, but when God called him, he called him from Ur of the Chaldees, which on our maps today is, is modern day Iraq. And God called to him, and because of his great faith, Abraham moved his entire family from one place to another, to a place that God showed him. So let's look at the record in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So he took his wife, his goods, his flocks, his cattle, his family, everything that he had at the age of 75, because God had spoke to him and Abraham believed every word that God said, and he moved his life lock, stock and barrel from one country to another, a place to where God told him. And he believed God. And God said that if he was to do this, if he was to believe in the word of God and show by action his belief, then God would bless him. He would bless him in numerous ways, too. First of all, he says, I'll make of him a great nation. So Abraham became the father of a great number of people, the Jewish people. There are Jews now in all countries of the world. They're all over the nations of the earth. So that has come true. So of his children, his children's children became a great nation. And he says, I will make thy name great. Well, Abraham today is a name which is still recognized as being a great name. And he says, I will, in verse three, the interesting thing we need to look at is he says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. 
So those nations, those peoples who are good to the Jews, God will be good to them. Those nations and those peoples who are bad to the Jews, God will be bad to them and curse them. So the nations that we see today in the Middle East that have signed agreements in recent history and these new ones today are blessed by God. They prosper. So in 1979, the first Arab nation to sign an agreement with um, uh, Israel was Egypt. It was brokered and arranged with assistance from the Americans, of course, but Egypt has benefited as a consequence of that. Jordan recognized Israel in the early 1990s. Again, Jordan has been a much more stable and better country to live in since then. So we can expect these nations, some of which are already very wealthy and quite stable, to be blessed. And even personally, if you look at uh, the history of how Donald Trump amazed and stunned the world by becoming president, before he was elected president in his election campaign, he said that he was going to be a president who would be very pro-Israel. And he has, in America, of course, there's a, a large uh, slice of the, uh, the electorate in America, which is of the evangelical Christian persuasion, who, who know a little bit about Bible prophecy, and they understand that if the American president is favorable towards Israel, then God will be favorable towards America. And that seems to have panned out over the recent years economically. Maybe they've suffered quite significantly, as all nations have over the last 12 months or so. But nonetheless, America remains one of the richest, most powerful nations in the world. And these are all the beneficial blessings and consequences of those nations that bless the Jews, that bless Israel. So... Let's just flick over the page to Genesis chapter 13 as well for another couple of points, just briefly. Genesis 13, and again, we find out something else that God said to Abraham. If we go into Genesis chapter 13, at verse 14, it says this. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. So God says, I'm going to give you a people, so many of them, they are going to be impossible to number. I'm going to give you many children. You're going to be the father of a great nation because of this act of faith that you've shown and that you are showing. And I'm going to also give you this land. But notice there it says, I will give it to thy seed forever. So the people who will be living in this land are going to live there forever. It's going to be an eternal aspect to this. And so this is talking about a time in the future after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where those who believe as Abraham believed and those who have been delivered and taken through the process the Lord Jesus got, the Lord Jesus has gone through, they will be blessed with a place in this kingdom, in this place forever. Quite remarkable and wonderful prophecies which are still being outworked by Almighty God. So having had a look at Genesis 12 then, let's have a look at where we are in the world today. Now, on the slide in front of you, I've got a few 
headlines from a few financial articles about the way the world was pre-pandemic. And uh, one of the major concerns is to do with the world economy because the world economy pre-pandemic had major problems with debt. So an article there from Bloomberg, the way out for a world economy hooked on debt, more debt. This is 2019, if you look at the date there. Bottom left-hand corner, again, from uh, 2019. The global collapse in interest rates may be setting up investors for a crash. So there are numerous people in the world of finance who are very concerned about the amount of debt that nations have. That New Statesman there article says, the next crash, why the world is unprepared for the economic dangers ahead. Talks about a global debt crisis, slowing China in terms of productivity, maybe a new recession, and we still haven't got over the results of the last crash from 2008. So pre-pandemic, the world has been very concerned about how it's going to cope with these massive amounts of debt that the world has. It's still a concern. Now, here we are in 2021, and the situation is now significantly worse. A hundred years ago, we had another pandemic. We had uh, the Spanish flu pandemic in, in 1918. There were no such things as bailouts in those days. There, was no, there were no such things as eat, eat out to help out. You couldn't stay at home and be paid by the government 80% of your salary. Jobs went to the wall. Businesses went to the wall. It was a dreadful time, in many ways very similar to the dreadful time that we're currently finishing off going through. But look at how much debt the world has taken on as it spends in response to the global pandemic. Uh, the pandemic has added 19.5 trillion to global debt. Look at that graph there. The debt levels that there are compared to GDP are almost as bad as they were at the end of World War II. And not a shot has been fired. So you look at the graph there between 1946 after the end of the Second World War and where we are now, 2020, coming to the early months of 2021. You can see that purple line there for the advanced economies of the world showing that debt fell after World War II, down it went, down it went, and it bottomed out in, in sort of the mid-70s. And it's been on the rise gradually ever since. But it's spiked in the last 12 months. This is a real headache and a real worry and a real concern for people in the world of economics and finance. And if you go back some 10 years ago to 2007, 2008, when we had the last global financial crisis, you'll see how steeply it went up then. And it's not returned to any lower levels like it was back in the early 70s. It's still continued to grow. This is a major, major, major concern. And we're going to see over the next few months, weeks, years, how this is going to pan out. But what the problem is, mainly, is concerned with interest rates. So at the moment, because money can be printed and distributed quite cheaply, because borrowing doesn't cost much in terms of interest at the moment, the world can function. However, interest rates since the last financial crash in 2008 
have pretty much collapsed. They're now at historically low levels and have been for some 10 years or so. So today's figures from the, uh, the Bank of England uh, on the uh, for Britain in specific, uh, specific terms, the interest rate is 0.1%. 0 0.1%. There's even suggestion that negative interest rates might be on the horizon. At the moment, there's a lot of cheap money sloshing around and it's cheaply available with low interest rates. But if those interest rates go up, it can be significantly bad. Now, for some of you younger ones, you won't remember the early 1990s when we had something called Black Wednesday, when the interest rate in Britain shot up and it was 12%, then five minutes later on, it was 15%. And then it went, it, 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 in one day, it catastrophically went up and up and up and up. And it meant people were in negative equity, couldn't pay their mortgage anymore. It was a complete crisis. And it was all to do with interest rates. And as a consequence of that, Britain at the time pulled out of the financial mechanisms of Europe. At the time, it was called the exchange rate mechanism. Back in the early 1990s, the pound was pegged against the German currency, the Deutschmark. And the Bank of England was throwing billions an hour trying to stop the hemorrhaging rates on the markets as the pound lost value and went down and down and down. So they fought back with higher interest rates and higher interest rates and higher interest rates. And at the end of the day, they just throw the towel in and say, this doesn't work. We have to pull the pound sterling out of the exchange rate mechanism, stop pegging it and tracking against the German currency. It was an event that was a forerunner economically to Britain in its relationship with Europe, not taking the euro as a currency. And eventually, as we've seen in recent times, coming out of Europe. But globally, this is a real concern. What's going to happen to interest rates? What's going to happen to world debt? It's a very interesting time to see these things happening. That's money. What about trade? Well, we've now got a problem. Um, there's a bit of a blockage in Egypt. Uh, there's this massive container ship. It's uh, chugging along the Suez Canal. And then apparently its engines have a problem. And then in addition to that, there's strong winds which blow this thing sideways. And it's now blocking the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is a major, major artery for world trade. A couple of headlines there. This is costing the world economy $400 million an hour, according to Lloyd's List. A lot of marine uh, industry and shipping is, is registered in London, insured in London. Uh, commodity prices for how much it costs to ship goods around the world is traded in London, bought and sold in London. On average, $9.7 billion worth of goods travel through the canal every day. It's crucial for the manufacturing sector in China and in Asia to be able to freely bring their goods through this route into the European market every day. And now there's this massive backlog. If I just move my screen over for a second, you can see how this little ship hasn't broken down and pulled over to the left and parked at the side of the canal. It's drifted sideways and blocking it from side to side. And there's a desperate effort at the moment to, to free this vessel to allow the uh, ships to continue to trade up and down. Some 50 ships a day go through this, this section of the canal. And if there's ever a picture that shows a bit of futility, there's one. You've got this absolutely colossal container ship there, and you've got one operator operating one little JCB or Komatsu or Little Digger, whatever it is. And he's trying to shift the earth from the front of the vessel. Apparently, having looked into it, 
earlier, there's a four meter difference between the bow and the stern of the ship. I would imagine the weight is pushing the back of the ship down four meters lower than the front of the ship. You can see the front of the ship breaching the waters there, stuck on the sandbanks or whatever it is at the side there. It's a major, major, major headache for world trade. And this is the actual size of the vessel in question. It's absolutely colossal. I, I didn't bother counting how long it was in terms of shipping containers, but I'm all I'm sure you're familiar with the size of a shipping container. This thing at the back has got 23, is it 25 shipping containers from side to side? It's an absolutely colossal vessel with millions of pounds worth of goods on board, crude oil, furniture, a whole bunch of things on board, and it's blocked and it's not coming. This vessel, if you look on the marine shipping websites, Apparently, this uh, this vessel, the Evergreen, uh, sorry, the Evergreen, the Evergiven, uh, is due to arrive in Rotterdam on Wednesday. Somehow, I think that's unlikely. Uh, I, I quite like the the fact it uh, shows the speed and course there zero. But you can see on the screen there with the map the problems in terms of its knock-on effect. Nothing else can get through either. Every dot you can see there on that little map. So here we are, Suez Canal, just to the east of Cairo. There it is. There's a massive blockage of vessels above and below it, and it, trade has ground to a halt. This is 12% of the Euro, of, of world trade. The 12% of the global trading market needs to get up and down through this canal. This is a major problem. How long is it going to take for this problem to be solved? A couple of blokes and a couple of diggers aren't going to shift it anytime soon. So they're now, even today, I think today in the headlines I was looking at earlier, uh, President Sisi of Egypt has ordered the vessel to be unloaded. They've got to get somehow all these containers off. What are they going to use? There are no cranes there, not this bit of the, of the Suez Canal. They've got to take cranes in. How are they going to get them off? How are they going to reduce the weight on this vessel to lift it up to float it again? Are they going to have to use helicopters? How is it going to be done? This is a real, real headache. So, uh, Daniel chapter 2, we're not going to go there briefly, but uh, just to outline a couple of things. It talks about how the powers of the world in which we live at the moment are going to be utterly transformed when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. So the nations of the world, Daniel explained to King Nebuchadnezzar, ancient times were arranged such as this. And then when Christ returned, he's represented by this little stone. It's going to smash the feet and destroy all of these things together and set up this new kingdom which will be established at his return. So nations of the world as we've seen tonight are in two camps. We haven't got time to go into Ezekiel chapter 38 but I would recommend you look at it in your own time. Ezekiel 38 talks about there are two groups of nations, one that are friendly towards Israel and another led by the Russians, by Gog, who are going to come down and try and destroy Israel. So that's an event which is going to come in the near future also. But our time is up. And so let me leave you with good news. There is great trouble coming to the world, centered in Jerusalem. The, we've seen in the last 12 months, haven't we, how this world we think is going to continue as it ever was, can so soon be unstable and destabilized and shaken to its core and things can grind to a halt. Well, the events in the world are all happening because God has a plan. That plan is going to shape the nations so that they will do his bidding. But ultimately, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, as the Bible clearly says, 
He will set up a kingdom of peace and righteousness, which will have no end. Isaiah chapter two and verse two. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We've scratched the surface tonight. Let's find out about what the Bible message is concerning that coming kingdom of God of peace and righteousness for the whole world and how you can have a part within it. Thank you. 